Well, good morning, church. Man, it's fun to see the room getting more and more and more and more full each and every week. Thanks for coming to church this morning. Thanks for worshiping and uh, hearing God's word uh, today. It's a joy to, to preach. My name's John, and I serve as the executive pastor here. Well, the year is 4 BC, and in the town of Jericho, Herod the Great has just died. And his son, Archelaus, has just taken control of the throne. He has, in his father's death, he has said, I am now in control of the land uh, of Palestine, of Israel. He doesn't have full authority or title yet. Caesar needs to give that to him, but he begins to reign immediately. At that same time, there was an uprising in the temple in Jerusalem. The Jews were upset about some things that had been going on and some decisions that had been made, and they actually are calling for new leadership, a new high priest. Well, Archelaus sees this uprising, and it, it, he's not happy about it. So he sends military officials down to Jerusalem, to the temple, to, to take care of the problem. And Josephus, the historian, records all of this in his writings, and he records that at that time, those military officials killed three thousand Israelites that were there at the temple. And uh, Archelaus took care of the problem. Historians actually tell us that Passover was canceled uh, that year to restore order to, uh, to the land. So Archelaus, soon after this, sails to Rome. And he goes to Rome to get uh, official title and authority to become the reigning leader, the king in the land. When he gets there, there's actually some of his family members there already. And they are lobbying Caesar for authority, for, for them to be given the authority, for them to be called king of the land. What's also shocking, when he arrives, he finds that there's actually a delegation of Jewish leaders who have showed up in Rome, and they are lobbying hard to Caesar to pick someone else to be the leader of the land because of what Archelaus has just done in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, Caesar doesn't listen to the family members, and he doesn't listen to the Jewish leaders, and he crowns Archelaus ruler of the land. He returns to Israel, and as king, he executed some swift punishment against those who opposed his leadership. He left as a contender for the throne, but he returned as king, and he exercised his full royal authority. It's with this story in mind, this backdrop, if you will, that we come to the, the text this morning. We find Jesus actually in Jericho teaching the people about the kingdom of God. Let's turn to Luke 19. We're going to start in verse 11 and go through verse 27. I'll read it for us this morning. While they were there listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. Jesus says to them, a, noble, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. He called ten servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him 
and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for servants to whom, sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, good servant, this master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you on your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Then why, did you, why didn't you put, your, put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? <clears throat> then he said to those standing by, Take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to become king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. All right, before we dig into the heart of the text this morning, let me offer two kind of general uh, things about parables before we jump in. First, we need to recognize here that Jesus is a brilliant teacher, and he's using a, a very familiar story about Archelaus to draw people in, especially people in Jericho, to draw them into the teaching. But we need to recognize that Jesus isn't making one-to-one exact correlations between his character and Archelaus's character. Archelaus's kingdom and his kingdom. His re- Archelaus's reign and his reign. It's not a one-to-one correlation going on here. We need to be careful that we don't make too much or too little of the fact that Jesus uses this story. The second thing we need to recognize is that teaching in parables is something that Jesus does consistently. Very regularly, Jesus teaches using parables. He, he takes things that would be familiar, stories, analogies, things that would be familiar to the people that he's teaching, and he uses those stories to teach a greater truth. It's not something that's very common for us in the 21st century. We don't often hear uh, parables being used and, and taught, particularly first century Jewish parables, right? Usually in the 21st century, a story is told uh, to, to, to teach a greater truth, but it's usually done in a way that builds and builds and builds until you get to the end, and then you have this takeaway, right? This aha moment at the end of the story where you go, ah, that's what the teacher meant. Often we call it the moral of the story. The story is used to, to build and build and build and then teach us a moral. Here's the moral of the story. And what we need to recognize is that, that although sometimes that happens in, para- in the teaching with parables, but often, most likely, it doesn't. 
Jesus uses parables, and in those parables, he's, he's often teaching truth throughout the entire teaching. That there's these big concepts, the truth about himself and the kingdom of God, maybe right in the first sentence of the, of the teaching, or woven throughout the whole teaching. And so the re- I, I bring that to our attention this morning because it's, it can be tempting, it can be easy for us to read this parable today and think that Jesus is the nobleman, make this conclusion that he is the nobleman, that he's going to go away and he's going to come back, and when he returns, it's going to be a violent time of vengeance and judgment because verse 27 tells us so. He's going to have those who opposed him killed right in front of him, just like Archelaus did. And so we make the moral of the story, don't be an enemy of Jesus, we're done, that's the point of the parable, let's go home. Now make no mistake, there is a category of people that are are listed and identified in this parable as the enemies of the king. There are enemies of the king identified in this parable, and it's clear We don't want to be an enemy of the king. We want to be loyal to the king. We want to know the king. We want to follow the king. We want to trust the king. We want to serve the king. We don't want to be an enemy of the king. But we need to recognize that what happens at the end of the parable is not the point of the parable. This is not the moral of this entire story, if you will. The ending of this parable is a portion of the lesson. So we also must note that Jesus here is not teaching about the the specific times or details or dates about when he is going to return. He isn't teaching about the specifics of what things are going to look like when he returns. Verse 27 is is a warning about the danger of opposing the legitimate king. Just like Archelaus administered justice, Jesus too, we need to recognize, Jesus too will administer justice to those who oppose him. And clearly, we do not want to be in that category. We do not want to face that consequence. But we need to recognize that there is, there is much more going on here than just what's happening at the end of this parable. There's, there's much more going on here. And we know that because one of the, the reasons that Jesus offers this story is to, to help people understand more about the timing of the kingdom of God. When will the kingdom of God be here in its fullness? Verse 11 tells us, while they were listening to this, who went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So Jesus tells this super familiar story about Archelaus because it parallels, it parallels in some ways his reign, his kingdom, and his experience. Particularly in the way that Archelaus had to leave, Archelaus left and come back, came back. And so it will be with Jesus as well. Jesus was the nobleman, the son of the high king, who was about to receive the kingdom all on his own. But before he is given that full authority, before that happens, he needs to to go to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And he's going to then raise from the dead. And he's going to ascend into heaven. He's going to go away. 
Someday he will return. Archelaus went away and, and Jesus is going away. The kingdom is not going to appear all at once. The kingdom is, is not going to be immediately here like the people are assuming. See, the audience assumed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately because the king was on his way to Jerusalem. He was going to take the throne back from the Romans. The kingdom of God would be here and be established. And it's easy for them to make this assumption. It's not crazy. They had been with Jesus. They had seen what he could do. They'd seen his miracles and his power. They'd seen him transform and change lives and heal people. They heard his claims about who his father was. They thought, this is it. They had given their lives to this man. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one. But Jesus needs to teach his people. He needs to instruct them that although he is the king and he is here now, he is going to leave. And the fullness of the kingdom is not yet the king is going to leave and the fullness of the kingdom in all its glory will come when he returns. See, Jesus needs to suffer, he needs to die, he needs to rise from the grave and ascend to heaven, and he needs to do the gospel work through the church to the world. The king is, is gone and he's coming back. The kingdom is here, but it's not yet. The kingdom has come in one sense, but in another sense, it would not come until Jesus comes back again. See, Jesus knew there would be this, this gap between the, the present and the future reality of the kingdom of God. And, and Jesus needs to prepare his disciples and his followers for how to live during this period. How do, how do, we, how do we live? What do we do? Even today, church, we live in this present, in that reality, right? This interim period. The king has left. He has not yet returned. So how do we live? How do we live in this interim period? This here but not yet. This already but not yet. How do we live? In the story, Jesus told that there were two groups of people waiting for the king's return. His servants and his future subjects while the king is away, he would expect that some of his future subjects would identify themselves as his enemies. And they would be working to, to overthrow him in his kingdom. There are enemies of, of the king identified in the passage. They would be plotting against him. And at the same time, his servants would be working hard for him. Working to help establish his kingdom. We've already addressed what happens to the king's enemies, but what about the king's servants? This parable has much to say about those serving the king, those who are loyal to the king, those who are waiting for the king's return. In the parable, there are ten servants of the king, and to each servant, the king gives one mina. A mina is a sum of money. It's not a, a crazy amount of money, but it's enough money to be able to find out if his servants are trustworthy. Are they industrious? Are they hardworking? Are they wise investors? It's enough to test their character and see where they stand as servants of the king. 
The king tells his servants, engage in business until I come. The expectation here is that while the king is away, his servants are going to engage in kingdom work, right? They're going to, they're going to work hard. They're going to make investments. They're going to get busy doing the king's work. They're going to be kingdom-minded and hardworking for the king. So if the, if the nobleman, the ruler, represents Jesus, then these ten servants represent servants of Jesus, servants of of Jesus Christ. Believers left waiting for the king to return. We too are called and expected to be about the work of the kingdom. We are the servants waiting for the king. And so we are to, to be about the king's business, to get busy investing in the kingdom, turning a prophet for Christ, our king. This then begs the question, well, what does the mina represent? What, what's the mina? What's the money here? What's going on? Now here it's important for me to point out that there is a similar parable recorded in the book of Matthew. And in that parable, the servants are given different amounts of talent to invest. That parable is about giftedness, our giftedness, what we have, and it's different for everybody. What, we, what gifts we've been given and talents and abilities we have and, and the fact that we are to get to work with those things for the kingdom of God. That parable is about giftedness. But here in Luke, each servant is given the same amount of money. They're given one mina. And so while it is true that we all have different talents and gifts and abilities, we learn that from the Matthew parable, these parables are, are different. This parable is about faithfulness. This parable is about faithfulness, not giftedness. Every follower of Jesus has the same responsibility to engage in kingdom work, to invest what God has done for us and in us, in our lives, to be faithful servants of the King. Those of us who are following Jesus and believe in Jesus and are allegiant to the king, we all have received the same gospel. We all have received this deposit, this investment in our lives. And Jesus wants us to grow it, multiply it, share it. The mina represents this reality that the good news has come and it is in our lives and it is invested in us. We've been entrusted with the good news. We have this investment that we've received from Jesus. We have the good news of Jesus. And we also have the, the testimony of the powerful effect it has had on our lives. Each of us who have been changed by Jesus and saved by Jesus, we have a story to tell. We have something to share about who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives. We all have the same command. Put to work the investment that Jesus has given you until he comes back. We are we're to multiply this gift, invest the gospel, increase its yield of good news, of salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but this then brings me to ask a bunch more questions. <laughs> like, what does that look like? How do I do this? What's the work of investing the gospel? What, what does that mean? And why does it matter? 
How do I put the gospel to work? How do I multiply it? Let me offer a couple of suggestions. First, I would say that we put the gospel to work. We further the investment that's been made in us by the way that we live, the lives that we choose to live, the way that we live our lives, by growing in our faith to be more holy and more righteous, to be more like Jesus each and every day. When we confess our sin and we ask for repentance, when we open God's word and we allow allow it to, to change us and form us and shape our lives, when we pray, asking God for healing or direction or guidance, when we, we open our hands and we, re, we say, Lord, we're fully dependent on you for everything, and we sacrifice and we give. When our, our neighbors look at us and they think, you're a little strange by the way that you live, the fact that you pursue righteousness and goodness and holiness and that you give stuff away, do you live this open life tr- trusting in someone for your salvation and direction and meaning and purpose? Second, I, I think that we also put the gospel to work and we, we do kingdom work and we make kingdom investments when we care for those who are under-resourced and underprivileged. when we, we help those and serve those and give to those who are in poverty, spiritual, em- emotional, or physical, when we make sacrifices to show God's, God's kindness and God's love and God's mercy to those who are hurting, when we, we, not just, when we don't just pray for people, but we actually care for people. We care for the sick. We sit with those who are grieving. We weep with those who are mourning. We give to those who are hungry. We live that way. We make, we make gospel investments. We do kingdom work. We, we are about the king's business. And finally, I would say that that we invest the gospel, probably this is the most obvious one, is when we tell, tell people about it, when we share it, when we say, you need to know who Jesus is and you need to know what he's done for us and you need to know what he's done in, in my life. I used to be like this and now I'm like this because of Jesus, that I'm saved because of him. And we, we tell our children about that and we tell our friends about it and we tell our neighbors about it. We tell people that we work with about it and we tell our classmates about it and those that we go to school with. We make kingdom investments and we, we grow the gospel when we share it with others. All right, as we turn back to the story, we see that two of the ten servants made good on the king's investment. Verses 16 and 18. Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Sir, your mina made five more. It's a pretty good rate of return, isn't it? Clearly, these these are servants to look to, right? These are faithful, loyal, loving, obedient servants. They got to work. They were faithful, trustworthy. Now, what's interesting, maybe you noticed this, the servants, they, they don't boast about their work, right? They don't boast about what's gone on. They actually say, your mina made ten. Your mina made five. These servants, they, they didn't credit themselves. They credited the master. It was his mina, his investment that made the increase. 
And church, so, so it is with the gospel. God tells us to put the gospel to work. And when we do, it grows the kingdom of God. He delivers people from sin and darkness. He heals relationships. He rescues people from poverty and death. He heals the sick. He mends relationships and heals marriages through the gospel. And none of the credit goes to us. None of the credit goes to us. It all goes to the king. It all goes to God for what he has done. It's his power that changes lives. It's his power that makes the kingdom grow. We are to be faithful and we are to be hardworking and we are to share and we are to invest his gospel not because God needs us to get this work done. Not because it can't happen without us, but, but because God commands it of us out of his love. That is, that's his plan. This is the beautiful plan of our king to involve us in the work of growing and spreading the kingdom of God. It's because he has designed it this way and it's, it's in a beautiful invitation that we get to participate with him as faithful servants. We get to lock arms with the king and be about his work. We get to feel the joy and the experience and the, the, the rewards that are a part of that. This is, this is his design that it's not about us. It's not about us, but we are powerfully and uniquely a part of the king's process. And how do we know this? We know this because he commanded it of us, but, but because there is a reward. He rewards those who live this way and act this way. He rewards the two servants because of their faithfulness, their trustworthiness, their hardworking. He says, well done. The servant who made ten received ten cities, and the, the servant who made five received five cities. There's a reward for those who, who faithfully serve the king. What's interesting to me, and I think it's probably interesting to you too, is that the rewards that they get are, are opportunities for more service, right? You get 10 cities, well, you get more opportunity to, to lead and serve and care. You get the, the benefit and the beauty of being a ruler of 10 cities, but you also get this opportunity to have more responsibility in the kingdom of God, more opportunity to glorify and serve the king. So the obvious question, the clear question right in front of us is, what are we doing with what we have been given? What are you doing with what you have been given? Are we being faithful to our king? Are we getting busy doing the work of the kingdom of God? Or do you find yourself like the wicked servant, the wicked servant, the, the servant who, who failed to obey, who wasn't trustworthy, wasn't loyal, wasn't loving to the king. What this servant did or failed to do is actually shocking to the king. He's shocked because the, the first two did so well and the third one comes up and, and he is shocked by how little 
this person did. That did nothing. The servant took his mina, he wrapped it in a cloth, and he hid it away, simply waiting for the king's return. It's almost childish, isn't isn't it? Seems childish what they did. Now, it's important to note here that this is one of the king's servants. This is one of the king's servants. This is not somebody in the category of an enemy of the king. And so we must take special note here, those of us that are are servants of the king, because many disciples can live like this, can act just like this servant. Rather than, than putting the gospel to work, rather than being about the kingdom's work, they're afraid to talk about it. They're afraid to live differently, afraid to, or unwilling to serve those in need, afraid to, to share what God has done in their lives and who Jesus is with those around them, afraid to pursue holiness and righteousness, afraid to give and sacrifice, unwilling to to give God the glory for their life and, and their work. Church, we can't miss this here. Jesus calls the behavior of this third servant wicked. According to Jesus, it is wickedness not to use and invest and work and multiply the gift that God has given us in the gospel. After this, there's this somewhat confusing exchange, right, between Jesus and the third servant. It almost sounds like at one level that Jesus is agreeing with this man, but what we need to realize is that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus isn't, in fact, taking what isn't his, and he isn't unjustly harsh. He isn't a thief. What Jesus is saying here is that, hey, if you actually thought that about me, you should have been the one that did more work than anybody else. You should have been the one that was more faithful. If you were actually thinking that about me, you should have been different. He uses the the man's words against him, and he does take from the man his mina, and he does give it to the one who was most faithful. I don't know about you, but again, this draws up a whole bunch of questions, right? Like, what does this actually mean? Like, what's going on here? And we're going to be honest with you, the truth is that scholars, people way smarter than me, theologians way smarter than me, pastors way smarter than me, have argued and thought about and written about what does it mean, this third servant? What is going on with this third servant? Does it mean that, that Jesus is teaching this really big doctrine here about salvation? Is it true that that Jesus can give the gospel and then take it away from us? Take our salvation from us? Does it mean that, that if we aren't faithful in investing it and sharing it and multiplying it, that he'll take it from us? Does it mean that this, this servant wasn't even saved in the first place? Maybe he's like a servant, but he, by name only. Like there's no fruit that he bears. There's no love for the master shown. There's no loyalty shown at all there's no nothing no fruit for the kingdom maybe he he just wasn't saved at all in the first place maybe he wasn't really a servant or maybe the 
the idea here that's being taught is that he's still a servant, but by his behavior, he, he misses out on all the rewards that are there for him. He, he's still a servant, but he, he misses out on all the rewards and all the benefits of, of service, of faithful service. As interesting as those questions are, the point of the parable is not to answer those questions. The parable is not ultimately about the soul state or the salvation situation for the wicked servant. What's really clear here is that we don't want to be enemies of the king and we don't want to be wicked servants. There's a warning here that we do not want to be in those two categories. So let's avoid that. Let's avoid being enemies or wicked servants. The goal of this passage is teaching about the delay in the kingdom of God and how we are to live by Jesus' command. How are we to live as faithful servants while he's gone? How do we live and serve the king? How do we invest? What do we invest? How do we multiply it? It's at this point that I'm, I'm moved to say something about our motivations, about our motivations, our motivations for following King Jesus. Because church, the truth is that this parable is used in many ways, in, in an unhealthy way to create fear, to stir up fear in people. It, it, We need to talk about our motivations here for being a faithful servant. Follow me along here. For some, the primary motivation to follow the king, to not oppose him and not be his enemy, comes out of fear of what happens to those who oppose the king. For some, the primary motivation to be a faithful servant of the king comes out of fear of what might happen to them if they were a wicked servant. The argument goes something like this. Be a Christian, be a faithful Christian, live rightly, serve faithfully because the king is coming back someday and you don't want to be on the bad list. You want to be on the good list. Church, this is similar to how a child thinks. They behave at first out of fear of consequences, right? We, the littlest ones, we're trying to get them to behave by being afraid of what might happen to them if they don't. But as a child grows and matures, we want them to live rightly out of love for what is good, not out of just fear. I mean, people who walk around just afraid of consequence, people who walk around in fear of consequence are miserable, miserable. They're full of fear and anxiety, constantly hoping that they're measuring up. Can they ever do enough? That's not the kind of lives we want to live. That we're we're motivated out of fear of Jesus. This fear can actually paralyze people. It can actually cause them to to miss out on the point of that whole life, (laughs) 
of following Jesus. Church, we don't want to be like that. We do not want to be primarily or simply motivated by the fear of King Jesus and what he might do to us in the end. Now, I recognize that the fear of God and the, the, the fear of the, the wrath of God are very real things. That's a, that's a part of our experience, that we must be cognizant and we must be respectful and we must be in awe of God and who He is and what He has done and what He is capable of. Kelly says it often here. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. So we need to recognize and be cognizant of it. But being afraid is, is not, it absolutely should not be our primary motivator for following King Jesus. To be motivated by fear is not it. Like a child, we must grow and we must mature. We must grow to, to be mature and motivated to serve and be loyal and trustworthy to the king out of love, out of a deep love and loyalty for King Jesus. The truth is that fear will motivate us to a degree. Fear will motivate us maybe initially. Fear may motivate us in some circumstances, but ultimately fear of judgment, fear of consequences will never produce the kind of love and devotion that our king truly wants from us. This is why Jesus takes time to teach this passage, this parable, to us and, and to those present. This is why he, he wants to teach us about our love and loyalty to the king. How do you, we live? How do we be true servants to the king? Let me read something for us this morning to encourage us along these lines. It comes from 1 John 4, chapter 15, or 1 John 4, verses 15 through 18. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. I hope that speaks to you today. Man, that, sp that spoke to me this week. It's beautiful. It's powerful. There, there can be no apprehensiveness or fear of God when we fully comprehend his love. We fully comprehend what he has done for us through Jesus. We don't walk around in fear as his servants to, to fear the character of God to, to fear the final judgment, that's paralyzing. It destroys the perfection that love offers. 
experiencing the love of God so powerfully and sharing it with others so genuinely, knowing without a doubt that God in spirit resides in our lives, results in unbound confidence as we approach the day when we will meet God. Church, we're, we're not irreverent, but we are fully assured because of his indwelling in us that although we, we walk through this world, we know that we are different. The text tells us we are like him. We are like Jesus, enjoying this privileged place with God. And so church, here's where we have a choice. Will we move on to maturity? Will we live like the faithful servants? Will we, will we be faithful and hardworking? Will we invest? Will we serve out of this deep love and loyalty to our King? Will we follow His commands? Will we work hard? Will we make wise spiritual investments? We need to ask ourselves, what are we doing today for the multiplication of the gospel? That's a heavy question, right? That's, 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 a, that's a big question to wrestle with. How are you living your life today? How does it multiply the gospel? I mean, that, like, that's a scary question. It's a big question, right? To wrestle with. Because I don't know about you, but when I wrestle with that question, I am immediately overwhelmed by shame and guilt for not making the most out of every opportunity that God has given me. And I know, without a doubt, I'm not the only person in the room who feels that. When I think of the opportunities I've had in my life, there are many that I missed. Many times where I was selfish and fearful and and prideful, not, not being courageous, not living for him, grabbing on and trying to control things. I could get overwhelmed by this, the shame and the guilt of, God, I, I'm not doing it. I'm not investing the way I should. But that's not how God wants us to live. That's not what love brings. It doesn't bring shame and guilt. It's in those moments that we actually need to take the focus off of our failures and off of our lost opportunities and put it back on the gospel, the very thing that Jesus wants us to share and invest. We must remind ourselves that the gospel tells us that my acceptance before God is not based on who I am or what I have done, but on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That God doesn't look on me and say, you blew it. You didn't do half of what I wanted you to do. He looks on Jesus and he sees Jesus. I can quickly feel shame and guilt, but I need to quickly remind myself that the truth of the gospel sets me free from that. I can freely go about loving and trusting and being loyal to the king, making spiritual investments because of the joy and the, the rewards that I experience because of it.
I think that's enough for today. I know, everybody wants donuts and coffee in the gym. It's back. All right, let me uh, pray for us to close our time. Father God, we love you. We love your, your word. It encourages us. It challenges us. It inspires us. God, I pray today that we will feel not the weight of your return, but the excitement of your return because we have been loyal and trustworthy out of our deep love and gratitude to you. God, I pray that you will motivate us, inspire us, move us to to be faithful, to make wise investments for the kingdom of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.